Hello listeners, it's Bree. And just in case you missed the last thing that we uploaded onto our feed, this is a very special announcement about our anniversary special. Next weekend, Sunday, July 23rd at 2 p.m. PST, 5 p.m. EST, or 10 p.m. BST, we are live streaming our anniversary special Pope Jeopardy and a Q&A to follow. This will be streaming live on YouTube. The link will be in the show notes for this episode, and it's youtube.com slash at PontifaxPod. And we will be taking questions in advance, so if you want to send us anything, you can do so at PontifaxPod at gmail.com. We hope to see you there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 121, Pope Sergius III. Things are about to get weird. Is this the pornocracy you keep talking We've about? We've made it to the pornocracy! <laughs> Welcome. Do you spell it with an extra O? Pornocracy? No, it's definitely pornocracy. And we are here. We've made it. Welcome to the pornocracy. Oh, yeah. And this is where I'm definitely going to put in a bounce chicka wow wow sound. <laughs> uh, we can find one of those for sure. Or Greg. Oh, I've been looking and then I got a whole bunch of very unfortunate pieces of audio that said things like, I like a hairy. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not it. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you just need to go like 70s, 70s porn riff or whatever. Yes, I had a lot more luck Googling bow chicka wow wow than I did porno. So. No, don't Google that. I think like you, it's got to be 70s. So, you know, yeah, you got to put the 70s in front of it. <laughs> so this period, the pornocracy, we are here. This is also known. More officially, as the seculum obscurum. Because everything's obscured. Everything is so obscured. That Egyptian darkness that we talked about last week, very much that. But this is a big moment in papal history, Fry, and it is not a good moment. So we're entering a period that's going to be a lot of fun for us. Sergii. Yes, yes, the nasty Sergii. So before we get into the episode, let's talk about these words that I've been hinting around (laughs) at, and now we're here. Let's discuss these words. These words. Where did the terms seculum obscurum and pornocracy come from, and what do they actually mean? Because you've been asking forever, what does that mean, Brie? So, seculum obscurum was first coined and used by 16th century church historian Cardinal Cesare Baronius, who wrote the very important Annales Ecclesiastici. In using Seculum Obscurum, he referred to the first half of the 10th century, effectively from Pope Sergius III to Pope John XIII in 964. This refers to a period where sources are incredibly scarce, but more importantly, a period that is also absolutely brimming with scandal and the total degradation of papal prestige. Like, if you thought it really couldn't get any worse than the (laughs) cadaver synod... Than everybody undoing everything? 
Oh yeah, it's gonna, they're, they're gonna take that, they're gonna run with that, then they're gonna add to that. In fact, this period is going to sink so low that it is considered one of the lowest points that the papacy will ever get to by some historians. Aren't there lower points? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. what a good little squeak. <laughs> You can judge when we get to the end of this period. Like you're throwing that heart of the ocean over the side of the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this is definitely called the nadir of the papal history at some points. So this period is also characterized by the absolute domination of one noble family controlling every aspect of the papacy. We're going to talk about them soon, but basically their trademarks are corruption, nepotism, and all manner of sex scandal. What's more, this term, seculum obscurum, is often translated as dark ages, and this is at least part of why the Middle Ages have gotten this very prominent sort of dark ages misunderstanding in the public imagination. This period in papal history is to blame, in part. For some of that. For the Dark Ages? Yeah, for the idea of the Dark Ages. The phrase Dark Ages generally comes from the understanding of the translation of seculum obscurum. Interesting. It's their fault. It's the church. It's always the church. It's always the church. Now, speaking of the church, pornocracy, <laughs> on the other hand, is a term that wasn't used contemporarily but was later imposed upon this period by 19th century scholars, particularly those who were of the Protestant persuasion when they were looking back and criticizing the church. Uh, They were just like, this is very smutty. Yes. Let's criticize the papacy for everything it's got. And their perspectives were shaped very heavily by the primary accounts of Lutprand of Cremona, Now, we've mentioned Lutprand before, and we've used him as a source in some previous episodes. We have. But at this point, his writings become significantly more salacious and condemning. And that is because he is a contemporary with the pornocracy, so he is writing with some personal vitriol of this situation. He's just like, I don't want to walk in here. I don't want to be here. (laughs) I don't know. I almost feel like it's the opposite. Like he really, really wanted to be there and nobody would let him. So he was really mad about it. (laughs) Oh boy. Not invited to the party. Yeah. I don't think Lutprand is being invited to any party ever. I once heard in the Miniculum, they described his works as a one-star Yelp of the entire city of Constantinople. And that's accurate. That's who this man is. So... I'm only giving you one star because I can't rate you zero stars. A hundred percent. That is how he feels about Constantinople. And that is also absolutely how he will feel about this family in this time period. So that term, pornocracy, translates to the rule of prostitutes. And hetocracy, another word they use, the government of mistresses. So this sort of gives itself away for why it's being used for this period. As we mentioned, we have one major noble family in control of the church, and in this family, the women will be very prevalent and very involved in the papacy, including making decisions, choosing popes, being sexually involved with those popes, and being related to popes. And of course, 
as soon as women are involved in anything to do with power, they must definitely all be harlots and prostitutes. I was going to say witches. (laughs) Well, same word, different pile. So basically, pornocracy, that's what she said. I'm shaking my head. I knew you'd hate it, but I love it. (laughs) So this is what we're dealing with for the next 60 years. And just to get us right off on the right start and give you an example of how wild this period is going to get and how wild this man is going to get, I'm going to start off with a quote from Gregorovius's History of the City of Rome in the Middle Ages about Pope Sergius III. Quote, A man of violence, seven years of whose life were spent in exile, seven in the pontificate, behind whom stood the outraged remains of Formosus and the blood-stained shades of other popes, whose reign is hidden mystery, compels us to regret the uncertainty in which this period must ever remain shrouded. I'm sorry, a lot happened in that period. Yeah, (laughs) a lot's gonna happen in this episode, so you ready? Let's do it. All right. So easy stuff first. Sergius was born in Rome, and his father was a noble called Benedict, who may have been an early member of the Conti family. We know that Sergius had many close connections in the Roman nobility, and when he entered the church, he rose rapidly through the clerical offices. He was made a subdeacon by Pope Marinus, and elevated to deacon by Pope Stephen V, and then in 893, Pope Formosus made him the Bishop of Care, which is modern-day Cerveteri. Now, this consecration requires a bit of a closer look, because like what we'd covered in Formosus and Stephen VI's episodes, this is part of this new trend of popes making their political enemies bishops outside of Rome, not only to remove their influence from the city, but also to make them ineligible to still be pope, since, of course, bishops were not supposed to be consecrated to any other bishopric once they had one. We have seen this is still technically the rule, even if there have been a couple exceptions along the way. And as we covered in his episodes, popes like Formosus had been using this little loophole to send away their loudest critics. And Sergius was definitely a critic. He was a very loud and prominent opponent to Formosus, who openly supported Lambert of Spoleto to be Holy Roman Emperor against Formosus's wish to have Arnulf instead. So, unsurprisingly, being sent away from Rome and being made ineligible for the papacy only made Sergius hate Formosus even more. And we're going to see the consequences of this later. But given no other choice, Sergius went to Care and served as the bishop half-heartedly for three years until the death of Formosus in 896. Now, as soon as the news arrived that Formosus was dead, Sergius just drops everything, immediately stops acting as bishop, and gets back to Rome as quickly as possible. And he arrives just in time to participate in the Cadaver Synod. Uh, Yeah. Way to roll up right when that's happening. Oh, yeah, and this is definitely on purpose because Sergius is not one of the clergy that's, like, forced to be there and is appalled by what's happening. He's, like, right in it. He is a very active participant, and he is eager to help condemn Formosus for these personal slights. He may have hated 
Formosus only slightly less than Stephen VI did. Like, he is there and he is in it. Revenge. And imagine how delighted he was when Pope Stephen VI ended the Cadaver Synod by invalidating all of Formosus's ordinations. So this officially reduces Sergius back to a deacon. But then he's immediately reconsecrated as a priest by Pope Stephen himself, which means he's right back where he started, and he is once again eligible for the papacy in the future. So perfect. He's super happy about this. Everything has gone his way. He then becomes supremely unhappy when Pope Theodore II is elected to the papacy in the following year and conducts that synod that undid the cadaver synod, reinstated Formosus ordinations and all of that. Oh. He's like, crap, all of this great stuff I've just gained. No, it's gone. But as we know, Theodore was only pope for 20 days, so Sergius just sort of spent his time hiding out and avoiding any acknowledgement that there were roles and duties. Pretending it didn't happen. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not the Bishop of Pare. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have to go back there. So then, when Theodore most conveniently dies, Sergius sees the opportunity he's been waiting for. And backed by his noble father, their supporters, and like-minded Spolatan party clerics, Sergius attempts to be elected as the next pope and succeeds. He was indeed elected at the Lateran. But you may have noticed this is not the episode following Pope Theodore, and we've already discussed what happened in Pope John IX's episode. Yeah, anti-pope things. Anti-pope things. John was also elected at the same time as Sergius was. And while Sergius may have had a majority, it's, it's unclear, John had the direct accord with Emperor Lambert, who exerted his influence to force the election in John's favor and also to drive Sergius and his supporters from the city. So this is where Sergius sort of technically becomes an anti-pope, and he is driven out into exile and condemned and excommunicated in John's first synod. So he is currently an anti-pope. He's been driven from Rome, but no longer has those claims to his bishopric in Care. So where is an ambitious anti-pope slash pope hopeful to go? Well, depending on what source you read, Sergius either went to one of two men. He either went to Alberic, the Count of Spoleto, or Adalbert II, the Margrave of Tuscany. In either case, it doesn't matter because these two men are allied together and both were prepared to support Sergius in exile and more. Oh, okay. So like, he's it doesn't matter which man he goes to because they're like the same group. They are in the same group. So, yes, they, they are working together. However, because we've touched on these men before and they're going to be somewhat prevalent throughout this time period, the distinction, just for the sake of clarity, Adalbert, the Margrave of Tuscany, Margrave being a military commander, had once been an ally of Berengar and had supported him in the Battle of Marengo. And then he'd been one of the nobles to turn on him and invite Louis the Blind to Italy, and then had turned back to Berengar when he forced Louis out of Italy. So Adalbert, the Margrave of Tuscany, is a fair-weather friend at best, but he's somebody who was deeply involved in the governance of Italy. 
Lutprand, our source, also doesn't like him and calls him a menace to all good folk and had very evil ways. <laughs> very evil ways. All right. Yeah. So Adalbert's the menace. Alberic, the Count of Spoleto and Margrave of Camerino, had assumed the region after murdering Guy IV of Spoleto. He'd been involved in the militia under Emperor Louis the Blind, and after Louis had left Italy in 902, he'd been left in Rome to help control and administrate the city. So this was a man who had some power both in and out of Rome. So whoever of the two Sergius went to, he was in the hands of powerful friends who had a vested interest in who succeeded the papacy next. But while Sergius was either in Tuscany or Spoleto for seven years, shoring up his support with influential Italian nobles, the whole anti-pope situation that we discussed last week in Leo's episode occurred as well. So to refresh your memory, in 903, Pope Leo was overthrown and imprisoned by a cardinal priest called Christopher, who claimed the papacy for himself. And we'll be covering how Christopher managed to do that and how his anti-papacy went in his own episode on Patreon. But suffice to say, for the sake of this episode, that overthrow was not something that had been planned by or supported by the main powers in Rome. It was just a surprise one? It was just a surprise one. It had definitely not had the support of the nobles. In particular, it had not had the support of Theophylact of Tusculum. These sound like fake names. Oh my gosh, this family has the fakest of names. But guess what? This is our family. This is our dominating family of the Seculum Obscurum. Why do they sound so fake? It sounds like, I don't know, sounds like somebody's trying to shoehorn in fantasy characters. <laughs> Aliens from outer space. You know what's amazing? There's, there's also definitely a pope who has this name. There's a Theophylact Pope later, so that's not the name he keeps, but yes, this is, this is a name that's going to stick with us for a long time. Uh, this is, the name is probably fairly Etruscan because, well, let's get into it. I'll go over it then. <laughs> so this is that family that is going to dominate the entirety of the Seculum Obscurum. Their influence is so prominent, in fact, that the term Tusculan papacy will still be relevant even after the Seculum Obscurum. So even after their period of utter dominance, they're still going to have quite an influence on the papacy. So Theophylact was the Count of Tusculum, which is a small Etruscan town not too far from Rome, but he had gained significant power far surpassing his title. Initially, he'd been a militia leader under Louis the Blind, and like Alberic of Spoleto, after Louis had left Italy, Theophylact was left in Rome to help control and administrate the city. And soon after, through some very powerful alliances throughout all of Italy, including with Alberic and Adalbert, he was effectively the most powerful and influential noble in the city bar none. And Theophylact is very, very close with our man Sergius. Like, so close. We don't know if this is because Theophylact was allied with Alberic and Adalbert, so allied with Sergius as a natural extension of that, or if they had been allies prior to Sergius being exiled from the city. Some sources suggest they might have even been related, but that doesn't seem very likely. 
But in either case, Theophylact was not about to have this upstart surprise anti-pope Christopher walking into the city and taking over the papacy. So he gathers up all of his nobles, because he has control of pretty much all of them. They move into the city, they move against Christopher, who was swiftly swept up and thrown in prison at the Castel St. Angelo, alongside his former captive, Pope Leo V. Remember we said that they were probably together? Yeah, hanging out. Yeah, hanging out. Sure. Beautiful irony. Hanging out in in like um, a murderous way. <laughs> exactly. There was only one bed, enemies to lovers, 70k. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> so Theophylax then sends word to Sergius in exile, inviting him on behalf of the Roman nobility to return to Rome and assume the papacy that he had once been elected to. And so Sergius did come to Rome, ending his exile at the head of an army provided by Alberic and Adalbert. He arrived in the city essentially uncontested and then was quote-unquote elected and consecrated as pope on January 29th of 904. And then, just to make sure there was no confusion over who was supposed to be pope, Pope Sergius ensured that both Christopher and Leo were done away with as a mercy, a.k.a. strangled to death, Uh, like we said. Yep. That is exactly what we said last time. (laughs) Now, as we also said last time, there are accounts that only Christopher was strangled to death and Leo was allowed to, like, retire to a monastery, but that doesn't seem very likely. If Leo was even still alive at this point when Sergius arrives, he's going to make sure he's not alive for very much longer. And of course, it's also just as likely that this command was actually the command of Theophylact rather than Sergius himself. So we'll have to decide, as with so many things, if we believe Sergius is guilty of killing an anti-pope and a pope when we get to Fructus Prohibitum. So, Oh, God. Yeah, and we're still, like, in his early life. He just became pope, so. So now that Sergius has been consecrated for Pope for realsies this time, without any challenge, he knows exactly what he wants to do first. Can you guess? Uh, Is it reinstate the Formosus stuff? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) He's going to convene. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he, he was all about that. So he convenes the Synod and immediately declares that, yes, despite what you've heard, Formosus is absolutely once again condemned, and all of his ordinations are invalid. And not only that, let's undo the rest too. When Theodore instructed that those bishops should not be reordained, he was wrong, and now they all require a new ordination all over again because this issue will never die, and he hates Formosus so much he literally cannot help himself. It's, uh, it's Easter again, isn't it? (laughs) It is. And just to make his point and top it all off, he commissioned an epitaph for Pope Stephen VI, praising him in like super politically charged terms for doing the cadaver synod. That's the one we read in Stephen VI's episode. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A while ago. Yeah. Now, if we were to believe Lutbrand of Cremona, this was also followed by Sergius digging up Formosus yet again to behead his severely abused corpse and throw him back in the Tiber. Again. 
Why can't we make cremains? <laughs> yes, at this point, can we not just make Formosus cremains? Fortunately for, for us, this is not true, and Lutpran has simply swapped Stephen VI's name with Sergius III because that's it just makes for a better story. And because Lutpran is one of the only sources available for this time, this was repeated in other historical accounts for a very long time. But Formosus was not dug up again. That didn't actually happen. But even without the potential of Cadaver Synod 2.0, Sergius's rulings were not well received by the clergy in Rome, and even worse, by the clergy elsewhere. Letters are pouring in from indignant clerics protesting Sergius's ruling and arguing against undoing Theodore's decrees. In the words of Horace K. Mann, quote, The ecclesiastical world of Italy was once thrown into a ferment. Such as had been ordained by Formosus and were at a safe distance from Rome did not fail to let their indignant cries be heard. Pens were set going, some to make inquiries and some in defense of the work of Formosus. Did you, did you say that they were fermenting? That they were thrown into a ferment. Yes, they're fermenting. <laughs> they're so angry about all of this that they've just turned into alcohol. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so mad. They are so mad. It's so yeasty. They're exhausted. They've they've exhausted all of their yeast components. <laughs> or how does alcohol work? I don't know. <laughs> but like, this, this would be so frustrating. You're a cleric. You're not. You got to be reordained. No, you don't. No, now you do. So everyone's really annoyed by this. And if the clerics were far enough outside of Rome, so many of these bishops just flat out ignore this, right? And understandably so. Uh, yeah, this has happened, what, it's been like, it's been like 10 years, right? It just keeps happening. How many years? It's been like 25 years. 25 years? Well, that's, no, let's, it's like 90s rules. The 90s was, yeah, what, 10 years ago? <laughs> it's just that, yeah, we have this complete just muddle of time. And people are upset about it. And they're like, look, we really don't want to do this again. This is so many popes from now. Like, Pope Formosus was episode 113. Pope Stephen would have been episode 115. And we're now at 121. So, like, this has gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So... They're just done with it. They're going to just ignore it the best they can. Unfortunately, this is going to cause confusion all across Italy over who is an ordained cleric and who is not. And you can literally just feel the prestige and lasting legacy of each of the previous popes just being degraded and meaning less and less every time this happens. Every single time. Yeah. They do need to get this figured out at some point. They really do. It's not going to be under Sergius, though. Now, for clerics who were actually in Rome and would be affected by this ruling, Sergius isn't going to let them avoid it, and he starts employing both bribery and threats through the handy-dandy muscle of Theophylact to force clerics to be reordained and to publicly support his ruling or be exiled from the city, or worse. <laughs> I'd rather go to the beach. Yeah, you'd rather go to the beach. He's not going to let you go to the beach, though. No beach for you. You want to see a prison cell? What if you leave 
What if you know they're coming and you just leave? You should at this point. If you are a cleric in Rome, you should have left a long time ago. It's not a good time. And it's not going to get better. We've just started the pornocracy. Just go. Yeah. But Theophylact's support is really coming in handy for Pope Sergius. He has now been assisted in winning the papacy and enforcing the ruling that was most important to him. So he owes a lot to Theophylact. And it should come as no surprise to anyone that Theophylact begins to rack up titles like crazy. Okay. Rack up titles like crazy, meaning lots of titles, not the title of crazy. He can have that one too if he wants. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) So he first becomes the papal vestiarius, which is the treasurer and head of the papal administration, all of the church funds, and all of its patronage. He also becomes the magister militum, which is in charge of all of the militia forces of Rome. He becomes a senator. He becomes the Dominic Urbis, which is literally Lord of Rome. So he's got church authority, secular authority, noble influence, influence with the Pope, influence all over Italy. If there had been any doubt about who was in charge, there is no illusions now. Theophylact is pulling all of the strings. Does he have time for all of those roles? I mean. He definitely has a lot of muscle. He can go, go do this, go do that. I have the money. I have the power. So, yes. But, interestingly, on that point, Theophylact absolutely and totally shared power with his wife, Theodora, who was openly called Senatrix Theodora. So, if he didn't have time, she sure did. And her involvement is part of why this period gets called the pornocracy. Theodora is making administrative decisions. And she is definitely going to play a hand in choosing popes. So, you know, a woman having a major role? Absolutely unacceptable. As Luprand of Cremona puts it, Theodora, the shameless harlot who exercised power on the Roman citizenry like a man? We're going to be spending a lot of time with her in future episodes, so I'm going to leave it there for now, but just know that Theophylact and Theodora are the true powers in play, together, and they are puppeting Sergius right along. Now, as far as the Western Empire goes, Sergius had much less to do with the major powers and the major players than many of our previous popes had done. But this is a period where things get tremendously shifted all over again. So we need to cover at least a little bit of what's going on in the background so that we can understand how this is going to play into Rome. So when we last left discussion of the empire in Benedict IV's episode, we had Berengar, who had been in charge of Italy, defeated by the invading Magyars, the Hungarians, at the Battle of Brenta, followed by the Italian nobles who turned to the Frankish king of Provence, Louis the Blind, not blind yet. (laughs) Blind eventually. Blind very soon. (laughs) So he'd come to seize control of Italy and become the next emperor. Louis had done so. He had been crowned by Pope Benedict IV. Then in 902, Berengar had regained the support of the nobles and forced Louis back out of Italy. Although, remember, he hadn't been deposed as emperor because he'd basically just been like, all right, I'll swear an oath, I'll never return to Italy. (laughs) But he just kind of left it. Berengar's like, yeah, that works for me. 
But it turns out, <laughs> shocking no one, that Louis not going to make good on that oath. Oh, he lied? Oh, who could have yeah. seen that coming? Who, who would have seen who? that? <laughs> the Italian nobles that invited him in and then helped expel him out, they might be annoyed with Berengar again. So they get annoyed because Berengar is in charge and they're like, hey, Louis, why don't you come back? And so Louis makes a return invasion, forcing Berengar out of his capital at Pavia and establishing himself at Verona. And Berengar's like, no, I am, I'm not about to do this all over again. And so he conducts a night invasion of Verona and captures Louis on July 21st, 905, and blinds him. He is now Louis the Blind. Um, was this with like was this with like a knife or was this with like acid? It's unclear. It's not quite said. I'm getting more of a pop pop sort of impression than a Bernie Bernie or a stabby stabby because he's he's super blind. Yeah. But I mean, you've, we've talked about so many ways to blind people already. There's so many choices. There are so many choices. And every time I cook something with vinegar, I think about it. <laughs> but anyways, we have an account from Lutprand of this capturing and blinding. So at length, Berengar, having entered the city at night, crossing the bridge with his soldiers while Louis was unaware, came up to him at the very breaking of dawn. Awakened by the clamor and the shouting of soldiers and informed of what the uproar was, Louis fled into the church, and no one discovered where he was except a single one of Berengar's soldiers. This man, moved by pity, wanted not to reveal him, but to hide him. But fearing lest Louis, discovered by the others, may be revealed and pay with his life, he went to Berengar and spoke to him thus. Since God holds you so high that he has placed your enemy in your hands, you should uphold his warnings, indeed his precepts. For he says, be therefore merciful as your father is merciful. Judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Thus Berengar, who was a clever man, understood that this soldier knew where Louis was hidden and tricked him with his sophistic reply. Do you think, you idiot, that I want to kill the man, indeed the king, whom God has placed in my hands? Did not even Holy David had the chance to kill King Saul, given into his hands by God, and yet desist? The soldier, won over by such phrases, revealed the place to which Louis had escaped. I don't think I would be won over by someone going, what do you think I'm going to do, kill him? You idiot. <laughs> what are you, an idiot sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> an idiot sandwich. Well, I'm sure he felt like an idiot sandwich after this. When Louis was captured and led into his presence, Berengar thundered against him with such phrases. Up to what point do you intend to abuse our patience, O oh Louis? Can you deny that occasion in the past, which hemmed in by my guards and my diligence? Could you not even move against me? And when I, inclining to pity, which was not owed you at all, let you go? Do you not feel, I say, that you are chained by your own perjury? You clearly confirmed to me that you would never re-enter Italy. I grant you your life, as I promised the soldier who revealed you to me. However, I not only order, but demand your eyes to be gouged out. Gouged out. Yeah, there you go. Once things were said, Louis was deprived of sight, and Berengar assumed the kingship. What? He's just like, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. Get out. Yeah, you promised, you swore an oath you would not do this, and here you are doing this. So, okay, I just, I know, I know we're, we're on gouged out now, 
but <laughs> I was recently watching Ember play Surgeon Simulator. Okay! And they're not really very accurate, like, surgeries. Um, and one of them, you have to replace eyes. Okay! And so you sort of stab the eye with a scalpel <laughs> to loosen it up, and then you start slapping the person around until their eyes fall out of their sockets, and then you remove them. What <laughs> game is this? <laughs> I said a surgeon simulator. What terrible! Okay, so that's what we're we're now envisioning mm-hmm. is happening to, to Louis the Blind. He got his eyes poked, and then he got slapped around a bit <laughs> until they fell out. Which, you know, seems like a good reason for him to forfeit his claims to Italy and the title of emperor and just go home to Provence, which is exactly what he does. And all of this, even though they weren't directly involved, seemed to suit Pope Sergius and Theophylact well enough. They don't have any direct ties with Louis the Blind, and Berengar was more the devil that they knew, at least with boots on the ground. But, you know, there weren't also... They just weren't that keen to crown Berengar as emperor either. He was clearly a divisive figure who didn't have the consistent or united support of the other nobles in Italy. However, for some reason, we're not sure why, it seems that by 906, Sergius was prepared to actually crown Berengar as emperor anyways, Perhaps it was to save face and promote some sort of unity, or perhaps it was on the instruction of Theophylact, and so he invited Berengar to Rome. It does seem like an odd choice, though, particularly because Alberic of Spoleto and Adalbert of Tuscany definitely were not supporters of Berengar, had turned against him twice, and they'd been the ones to help Sergius claim his papal throne. Yeah. Yeah. And they are allies with Theophylact, so why would the Pope and Theophylact want to alienate them when they are the power outside of Rome? Alienate them he did, at least to the effect that when Berengar attempted to come to Rome, Alberic and Adalbert just waylay him with troops and block his way and say, nope, you can't go there, we're not letting you be crowned. You do not get to be the emperor. Yeah, and Berengar would not be crowned as emperor for another 10 years. So in this moment, it definitely works. And mostly kept it out of the papal purview for the time being. So this is why Sergius doesn't actually end up all that involved in these politics, because Adalbert and Alberic are like, nope, he can't come to you. Sorry. But this does not really keep all of the pieces from his purview, because This sort of unstable, unsure rule in Italy does cause other problems. See, since Berengar was not being crowned as emperor, he wasn't going to keep his supporters in line either. And this comes to a head most notably in Ravenna. So in Ravenna, Albinus, the Margrave of Istria, starts taking advantage of all the free reign and causing a lot of problems for the Archbishop of Ravenna, John, mainly by taking over lands that belonged to the church. John wrote to Pope Sergius, who commanded Albinus to stop and relinquish the property back to the church. Knock that off, that's mine. Exactly. Albinus ignored the Pope and continued to encroach, because who was gonna stop him? No one. He was a Berengar guy, and Berengar's like, do whatever you want. 
But Pope Sergius knew that Albinus was a vassal of Berengar and decides to use this to his advantage. So he writes to the Bishop of Pola, who's the most influential bishop of the whole region, and instructs him to intervene with Albinus, and goes on public statement to essentially threaten Berengar's imperial ambitions, saying, quote, he would never bestow the imperial crown on Berenger until he promised to take the Istrian march from Albinus and give it to some better man. So, one success. Basically, this starts to pull Albinus back in line because Berengar is going, oh, the Pope's still considering crowning me, but he's not going to do it if my men are running wild. So in this way, Sergius does slowly pull some stuff back together. Now, moving to the east... Sergius had some particularly unique contact with the Byzantine Empire. Oh, that thing's still around? Yes. Oh, it's still around. (laughs) Like 1453, isn't that the year? (laughs) But yes, so he has some unique contact with them on on an interesting issue. And that issue is fourth marriages. Huh. That's... Yes. That seems excessive. That is what they thought, too. So (laughs) the emperor at the time, Leo VI, who is known as Leo the Wise. Well, let's see if if he sounds very wise by this. But basically, he wants to be married again. He'd already had three wives, but they had all died without having a male child. Okay, well, that's if he's been a widow that many times, is he killing them? No, no, it's not. I don't think it's implied that he killed them. But it is a weird scenario, so let's go through it. First, there was Theophano, who had been replaced by Leo's first mistress, Zoe Zoutzania, which was already deeply controversial. Then, when Zoe died, also not having produced a son, Leo had married Eudokia, or Eudosia, Bayana. And this was even more controversial and complicated, because at this time, third marriages were considered illegal, and had been condemned formally by the church. And not only had they been condemned formally by the church, this was a law that Leo himself had pretty recently reissued in an especially strong format, according to historian Timothy Gregory. So he had really reinforced, hey, third marriages, those are illegal, and then shortly after he wants a third marriage, and it doesn't look great. And we could get into a whole conversation here about marriage canons in the Eastern Church, but that has more to do with the emperor than the emperor and the pope. So to summarize, the general stance on marriage in the Eastern Church was supposed to be a one-and-done deal. But widows and widowers could remarry, especially if there were no children, as stated in St. Paul's 1 Corinthians. However, in the Byzantine practice, these second marriages are neither encouraged nor celebrated, and the couple might even incur like a perfunctory temporary excommunication as a result of their marriage. So they're like, yeah, you can do it, but it's frowned upon to have a second marriage. Yeah. Third marriages, however, were entirely forbidden. In the words of St. Gregory of Nazianzus, the patriarch of the 4th century, quote, The first marriage is legal, the second is condoned, the third is illegitimate, and that which is beyond is swine-like. So, when Leo had married Eudokia, he'd caused an exceptional scandal. But we're not even talking about that marriage, because then Eudokia died, and the emperor was still without a legitimate male heir. 
So now he wants to marry his mistress, Zoe Carbonaspina. Zoe had just given birth to the emperor's illegitimate son, who is the future Constantine VII Porphyry Genitus. And if he married her, he could legitimize this child and finally have an heir. So this would be marriage number four. And as you might expect, the patriarch, Nicholas Mystikos, was against this and refused to carry out the marriage service. This was like beyond even an illegal third marriage. Yeah, this is extra. It's not the frowned upon second marriage. It's not the illegal third. It's a fourth new thing. Swine-like, yes. He did, however, agree to baptize the child, Constantine VII, but only if Leo repudiated Zoe and... This only seems to be because Nicholas kind of gets caught in a conspiracy and needs to sort of save his life. So he's like, I'll go as far as to baptize your child, but I'm not going to carry out this marriage. So the emperor found a priest to carry out the marriage. So then the patriarch is like, no, excommunicates the priest and refuses to acknowledge the marriage as canonical. But by now, Leo was pretty used to getting his way, right? (laughs) I have now have my fourth marriage. And I want whatever I want. So he turns to the church in the West, hoping he could force the patriarch to come around. So Pope Sergius receives the appeal from both the emperor and the patriarch. And Pope Sergius considers the case and then decides in favor of the emperor. Shocking. So he indulges the emperor his marriage, claiming that while there were condemnations of third marriages very explicitly in church law, the church had no such commentary on fourth marriages. Oh. It's a very convenient loophole. (laughs) But they didn't say anything. Yeah, you know, usually when you say that the third marriage is illegal, they assume that the rest of them are legal. But he's like, no, we haven't explicitly stated that. Only the third marriage is illegal. And according to historian Warren Treadgold, quote, the Western church permitted remarriages as often as one was widowed. So they're not as hung up on the number of marriages as the Eastern church is. So he goes, yeah, it's fine. You can have a fourth marriage. Who cares what your patriarch says? So with this encouragement from the Pope, Emperor Leo forced the patriarch to resign and replaced him with another patriarch who was amenable to the marriage and acknowledged it as legitimate. So this, this is not a great look for the Pope, right? While it gave the emperor what he wanted, it certainly didn't endear the Pope to the staunch Eastern Church and continued to chip away any sense of the Pope as an authority that the East should obey. Like, they're really not happy with him about this at all. But that was not all, because Pope Sergius, like his predecessors, had defended the use of the filioque in the Nicene Creed as dogmatically correct. This was the inclusion of the and the son that is in the Nicene Creed, and we've discussed this in much greater detail in episodes 97 and 98, if you want to go back and review that. Remember, the Eastern view is that the filioque should be excluded and condemned. So he's coming out. He's making all sorts of ruling at the Eastern Church, and then he's going, yeah, and by the way, you should throw in the filioque while you're at it. (laughs) Oh. Yes. And so, at a council in Trosle in 909, 
Sergius instructs his legates to urge the Byzantine church to pull back from their overt condemnation of the Filioque. Why, why is he meddling? Well, that's the question. Why is he meddling? Why is this the thing you need to do right now? This is not his business. Exactly. He really needs to, you know, stay in his lane. Theoretically, yes, is it his business? He's the universal leader of the entire church. The Eastern Church is not seeing him this way, and this is not helping. Canon 14 from that council reads as thus, quote, As the Holy Apostolic See has made known to us that the blasphemous errors of a certain Photius against the Holy Ghost are still in vigorous use in the East, errors that teach the Holy Spirit proceeds not from the Son but from the Father, only we exhort you, venerable brethren, together with us, in accordance with the admonition of the ruler of the Roman See, after a careful study of the works of the fathers, to draw from the quiver of holy writ arrows sharp enough to slay the monster which is again springing to life. Not great. Mm-mm. Hey, you guys are being blasphemous heretics. Cut it out because I'm the big man. Just stop. Go, go back. Go back to Rome. That's how they feel about him. And even though this council didn't take place in the East, making this declaration managed to annoy the Eastern patriarchs so much that they struck his name from the diptychs. Oh, no, not the diptychs. (laughs) It has been a good while since we've talked about some diptychs, right? The diptychs are back. (laughs) The diptychs are back. I was going to have a picture all set up for you and then I forgot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah dick dicks oh did you get me one i did look at that cute little oh my guy. god look at that baby <laughs> <laughs> now imagine sergius has been struck from that so. you know what i would be very upset to be struck from the dick dicks <laughs> i know it would be the worst and we haven't had that in a long time so that gives you an idea of how much he's annoyed them by issuing this proclamation they're just like why well we're gonna erase your name Exactly. We're just not going to deal with you. You're going to give our emperor permission to walk all over us and do things that are illegal. And now you want to talk to us about heresy in the Nicene Creed? Mm-mm. We're not having it. So overall, his, his impression in the East is not great. But Sergius actually does have one achievement that is at least favorable. You might remember on our episode on Pope Stephen VI, we discussed that the Lateran Palace had pretty much entirely collapsed, either because of an earthquake or abject disrepair or because it was the direct displeasure of God because of the cadaver synod. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. And there had been some small rebuilding work that had been done, but that just got plundered when anti-Pope Christopher came in. So by the time Sergius becomes Pope, the Lateran was in the worst shape that it had ever ever been just a trash place (laughs) it is literally a pile of trash and rubber it is just absolutely derelict nothing's happening there and so he actually undertakes a full rebuilding from the ground up and we have a quote from john the deacon whilst the intruders occupied the apostolic sea they took from the basilica all its treasures all its ornaments of gold and silver and all the vessels which had been presented from its foundation divine service was no longer celebrated within these walls but it was abandoned to thorns and briars 
Sick at heart at the desolation of this most glorious building, Sergius entirely rebuilt and refurnished it at the same time covering its walls with fresco. So that's pretty good. Frescoes? Frescoes. He's redecorating it. He's actually rebuilding it so it's architecturally sound for the time. It's not falling over when the wind blows too hard. Gregorovius adds that Sergius' renovations made the Lateran a temple which had risen out of utter ruin, more than ever strengthened the reverence of the faithful. And this apparently made it a more attractive burial place for popes than St. Peter's for about the next 200 years. St. Peter's isn't looking super great either. So that's good. He also carried out a few other building endeavors, including assisting with the rebuilds of the Church of Sylvia Candida after it had been raided by Saracens, and Nonantola Abbey, which had been attacked and burned down in September of 899 by the Magyars. Pretty good. Yeah, he's doing some construction. Yeah. So now we've dealt with some of the bad and some of the good. And now he dies. No. <laughs> we need to get to the ugly. <laughs> we haven't even gone into the pornocracy part yet. Yeah! Oh my well, god, that's my next... we've been recording for an hour. <laughs> I know, I know, right? This is yet another reason why this papacy kicks off the pornocracy. The ugly piece. So, according to Lutprand... Pope Sergius had a sordid affair with Marozia, who is the daughter of Theophylact and Theodora, when she was about 15 years old. Yuck. Yep. And this affair produced a son, the future Pope John XI. Oh. Quoting Leoprand, Theodora had two daughters, Marozia and Theodora. Theodora had a small Theodora. She did. Not just her equals, but if anything in the exercise of Venus. Of these two, Marozia, by wicked affair with Pope Sergius, of whom we've made mention above, gave birth to John, who after the death of John the Revenant, obtained the leadership of the Roman Church. Scandal upon scandal. Did they just say, like, <clears throat> like they were, they were sluttier? Is that what they said? Yes. Yep. Like, That's nicely. exactly what he said. Yeah. <laughs> Faster in the exercise of, of Venus, Venus is the nicest way to call somebody a hoa. <laughs> so we're slut shaming over here? Oh, Loot Prand does nothing but slut shame. That's all he lives for. Yeah, we get a lot of that. So scandal upon scandal, and even worse, uh, Marozia was married to Alberic of Spoleto, no less. <laughs> As a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely as a baby. It's it's pretty, pretty gross. Although we have to remember that this comes from a source that hates Sergius and hates Theodora and hates Marozia. Because he wasn't invited to their party. You can you get it, right? He seems like a super salty slut shame and loser, right? <laughs> and more telling, neither of our other contemporary sources from this time period, of which there are Little, but we have Auxilius and Vulgarius. They make no mention of this affair, despite also not being generous to Sergius's reputation. As Horace K. Mann points out, it cannot be doubted that had these writers known anything against the moral character of Sergius, they would not have failed to record it. I'm sending you a very weird gift. It is a weird... Wow. Next time, you invite Leo Pratt. <laughs> I mean, 
Yes. So we do know that Marozia is the mother of the future Pope John XI. We know that. Yeah. However, you know, with all of this not being mentioned in Auxilius and Vulgarius and only coming from Lutpran, historians now have evaluated accounts of the affair and the paternity of John with a critical eye and found flaws in the allegations. So some of the more slanderous accounts implicate that Marozia's child was illegitimate and born before Marozia was married to Alberic in 909. But evidence suggests more strongly that he was born after the wedding in 910. And as George Williams and papal genealogy suggests, he might have been born even after Sergius died in 911, which also hopefully makes Marozia a much more appropriate age to be married and giving birth. So today, it is generally accepted that Pope John XI was fathered by Alberic of Spoleto and not of Pope Sergius. Okay. Not that this changes how much influence this family is going to have in the future of the papacy, because however you look at it, Marozia's son is going to be a future pope. Yeah, he's going to be pope eventually here. Yeah. What is very likely, though, is that they definitely had some sort of affair and that she was definitely a child during during the years of that affair. So that's gross. And that makes me happy to say the next sentence, which was that Pope Sergius died on April 14th of 9-11. Amazing. Now, Bartolomeo Platina tells us that Sergius's death was foretold by an omen. Oh. We haven't had an omen in a long time. So I will quote, Sergius, living his light after this rate, died in the seventh year, fourth month, and sixteenth day of his papacy. Several fiery apparitions and blazing stars with unusual motions having been seen in the heavens a little before. Fiery apparitions and blazing stars. That's a pretty good omen, right? Yeah, that's your standard omen. Unusual motions. The sky. Not comets or anything like that. Omens! was particularly ominous because even Wendy J. Reardon calls his death mysterious and suggests that he was in exile at the time that he died. Now, only one other article hinted at Sergius being in exile, suggesting that he'd been forced into leaving due to the unpopularity of his actions against Formosus and his undoing of Theodore's Synod. But literally none of the other sources, contemporarily or otherwise, make mention of an exile. So... I'm chalking this up to some misunderstanding about his previous exile after the election of John the Ninth, rather than mm. a second exile. Yeah, okay. That first exile. Yeah. He was buried in St. Peter's between the Silver Gate and the Gate of Ravenna. And Wendy J. Reardon says that no epitaph has survived. However, in Horace K. Mann's book, he cites an epitaph that was recorded by Malleus. And I will read you that one. Whosoever approaches the reverent thresholds of this blessed Pope, behold the keepers and memories of pious Peter. He held the height of apostolic seats by paternal right when Theodore died. Our father was driven from the city, the sacred rites of John, and himself the wolf scattered the Roman flock. He was exiled from his country for seven years. Afterward, he returned to the city with many prayers of the people. He was received, consecrated Pope, rejoiced in receiving that seat, 
The shepherd loved his whole flock, even as he subdued the invaders of holy places, the churches of Rome, by the sword and by the judgment of the fathers. Quick thanks to Stephen Kautowicz, Dr. Patrick McBride, and Beverly Silly on Twitter, who all helped with the translation of that one, because it was just in pure Latin. So that is Pope Sergius and the beginning of the pornocracy. Are you ready to rate him? I guess. Let's rate this guy. Papatum infallium. This is not going to be a good category for him. Mm-mm. So his papacy marks the beginning of a period known for being one of the lowest points in papal history. We're talking seculum obscurum. Pornocracy, the complete dominance of the church by a secular noble family, including women. None of this is good for actual power, influence, integrity, prestige of the papacy, even if we look at it and go, yeah, okay, we can see the overt misogyny in the idea of the pornocracy. That's not good. He was an anti-pope. He was. He once again undid the work of his predecessors Formosus and Theodore. He did denigrating all moral authority or consistency or longevity in the papacy. He's enforcing his decrees through bribery, muscle, and threat. His aggressive defense of the filioque against the Byzantine church gets him stricken from the diptychs. And his decision to support Leo VI's fourth marriage lost the faith of the Eastern church evermore. Can we, like, give him negative points? I mean, you could give him a zero. A zero is strong. However, he does need a zero. He really does seem to need a zero. However, before we give him a zero, we do need to consider that most of the sources we have to rely on from this period hate him and have spared no effort to make him look as awful as possible. And these sources have even influenced our later accounts of him, like Gregorovius and Baronius. We quoted Gregorovius at the beginning of the episode, so we'll finish with a quote from Baronius, who describes Sergius III as a wretch worthy of the rope and of fire. Flames could not have caused this execrable monster to suffer the punishments which he merited. So they all hate him. Well, maybe they have a reason. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I can't see a reason to actually give him any points here. Everything is bad. He's been annoying, honestly. He's been super annoying. He's been not great about anything. And it just gets worse from here. So it's a zero. Yes. For sure. Fructus prohibitum. Fructus prohibitum, on the other hand. Although that's a full ten there. Yeah, so let's run through it quick. He was an antipope. He either ordered or was complicit in the murder of another antipope and a pope that had been uncanonically deposed. Sources often call him the first pope to kill another pope. That doesn't seem right. It really is. If it were direct, sure. But we've seen a lot of these strangulation sort of scenarios play out. And if Theophylact was the one who actually gave him the command to do it, he's no more guilty of papal side than, say, Vigilius against Mm -hmm. Silvarius. Yeah. In any case, it's still murder. It doesn't get him off any, but there's that. The alleged affair with Marozia, it's, it's an affair with an underage girl who they say produced an illegitimate son, who was also the wife of his great ally, going to have a huge impact on the church because 
her family's going to have all that power and her son's going to become Pope. And he appears on pretty much every single list of top 10 bad popes or most controversial popes and scandalous popes that you can find. It's up there. Yeah. Is it 10? Yeah. Well, let's go with like a nine. <laughs> a nine? Okay. Let's see. What could be higher? We have murder. We have anti-pope. We have underage. I can't think of anything that would make it higher, though, aside from heresy. So I don't know. I've, I'm going to give him a 10. You can give him a 9, and then he'll get a 19 mm-hmm. in that category. Seculari impactum. Hey, remember when popes used to try and keep secular interference out of papal elections? Yeah. <laughs> remember that time? Yeah. No. This is the so complete opposite of that. He is absolutely inextricably wrapped up in the House of Theophylact, and this is going to leave a legacy of over a hundred years on the papacy, where this family's going to call all the shots, they're going to choose the popes, they're going to make all the decisions. This is good secular impact if you're part of the Tusculan family or if you're an aristocrat, but otherwise, it's terrible. You know? Yeah. We could credit him, however. He rebuilt some stuff. He rebuilt some stuff for sure. He also has strong alliances with Alberic of Spoleto and Adalbert of Tuscany, which supplied him with an army. So that means he does have a bit of influence outside. It's not great. He doesn't have any ties to Louis the Blind. He doesn't have any ties to Beringer. So everything that's happening there is somewhat something that he doesn't have any influence in. So... Yeah, I think the only positive thing really is the rebuilding of the Lateran. So what is that worth? A point. A point? I mean, it's the Lateran. Three points? Are you giving him two or three? Two. Okay, if you're giving him two, I will give him two as well. He'll get a four. I feel okay about that. Fossium Sanctus. Now, when it comes to the images of Sergius and his representation... There are two facts that come up about him. The first is that he's said to be the first pope to ever be depicted wearing the triple papal tiara. Okay? How many? What? Okay. You know, the big triple hat. The big hat. Yeah. Yes, with the three crowns on it. He's apparently the first pope to be depicted wearing that. There is no evidence of this anywhere, and none of the images that are known to actually verifiably be of him, he's not wearing that. However, that being said, he is his look that he's quite famous for is fairly iconic. And in looking into this, I found out who our bad artist is, Fry. Oh. Where all of our bad pictures came from. Yeah, they have a name. They have a name because this image of him from what we have always called our bad artist is the iconic image of Sergius. And I found out finally, it is from a copy of a book called The Lives and Times of the Pope by Chevalier Artaud de Montour. And that's where all of our bad art has come from. So even though this isn't the one we're going to rate him on, I feel like today, this is the one I got to send you first, because this is the iconic image. And to celebrate learning where it's actually from. (laughs) Oh boy, that's a bald man. Super bald. (laughs) He is the baldest looking bald man, right? He definitely is bald forward. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the image that is most associated with him. 
However, this is not the image we rate on, so I'm going to send you two copies of the image we rate on, because one is higher quality, but very, very Every small. Every time. And one definitely looks like a melting skull. So. Oh, no. Yep. Oh. Oh. What? Okay, he's, I don't know. He's like <laughs> some sort of Dr. Emmett Brown with a bunny poof. The bunny poof is very aggressive. <laughs> it's like a little unicorn horn. It does. It feels more like a horn than it does a, a fluff of hair. For oh sure. my god! No, you know what he looks like? Count Olaf. <laughs> yeah, it definitely gives that vibe, doesn't That's it? Especially Count in- Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean he's going to score well for being Count Olaf? I don't think so. I'm gonna give him like a two. Okay, you want to give him like a two. So this worse quality version one. I love because it definitely looks like a skull. Like, part of this looks like someone tried to turn a Pope picture into a Memento Mori. And that makes me love it. So I'm actually going to score him a fair bit higher. I'm going to give him a six for that just because it's creepy and weird. And that will give him an eight, which when scored out is a two. But before we move on, that second fact that is often said about him and his depictions is that... Apparently, his papal heraldry contained the checked coat of arms of Croatia and a falcon that has also become the state symbol of Croatia. Now, I looked into this because a bunch of this didn't quite make sense. First off, papal heraldry doesn't really become a common thing until after the First Crusade. And also, no matter how hard I looked and called upon others for help, I couldn't find any connection between Sergius and Croatia. No. No. Croatia did exist at this point as a duchy and would become a kingdom in 925, but still, there's nothing to associate him and Croatia at all. I checked thoroughly into Theophylact and the whole of the Tusculans and found no connection there either, but according to the website that claimed this about Sergius, they also claim this sort of papal heraldry for several other Tusculan popes that we'll deal with. So I'm leaving that there unless I'm able to find someone who is a Croatian historian or someone who has some nuggets of wisdom to drop. So otherwise, I I have no idea why they say that. All right. Wow, you've just sent me a gif of Count Olaf. And (laughs) that's exactly how I picture Pope Sergius behaving, going like a T-Rex. That seems extra fitting. For this man. <laughs> Tempus Pontificus. January 29th, 904 to April 14th, 911. Seven years, our longest pope in a while, and a score of 1.75. Yeah, not, not a couple months here. No, we haven't had a pope last anywhere near that long since Stephen V. So it's been a while. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. (laughs) No. Oh, God, I hope not. No, absolutely not. Zero. But that brings us to his total score. And thanks to all that scandal points, he's doing not too badly. He has a 26.75. It's not a 69, though. It's not a 69. No, it isn't. He didn't murder nearly enough people for that, I guess. He also didn't, you know, write the books that would become the Bibles. (laughs) 
But that puts him in 41st place overall, which at episode 121 is pretty good. And there is a lot to consider when I ask you our last question. So are you ready? Is he papely enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull fry? You know... I actually am so annoyed by this man that I never (laughs) want to speak of him again. Really? But this is the start of the pornocracy, Fry. He needs to get in his lane and he needs to (laughs) shut up. So so you don't want to give it to him out of spite? Spite. I mean, that's fair. You know, I, I could see the argument going both ways, really. I feel like this is going... There are some very interesting popes that we're going to cover from this period that I'm more excited to talk about than I am about Sergius. He does really just feel like the ball of awful that got the snowball running. (laughs) So there's nothing that jumps out as being particularly excellent in that regard, aside from, you know, just being a gross and horrible old man. So I, I will not fight you on that. And I will also give him a no. So... Sorry, Sergius, I don't feel bad for you. Nah. So that brings us to the end of our episode where we have some thank yous to make. So first off, all of our editing is done by Greg Gassman, who is the host of the Popular History Podcast. You should definitely check him out. We also want to thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor for always being our motivation and our inspiration for this podcast. And also thank you to all of you who are listening and stuck with us through our hiatus at the time of recording, we are just about to actually officially announce our return date for the podcast. So you'll be hearing this in several months time, but yay, we're coming back. And yes. that's really cool. It's happening. It's happening. And that is a very positive note to end on. So we can say thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. You can find his show, Popular History, on all major podcatching platforms. And keep an eye out for his new show, Arexipod Ranking Cardinals, Cardinal Numbers. You can also reach Greg at popularhistory at gmail.com. Get it? It's popular, but with an E, for the Popes. Sergius is not okay. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're Pontifax Pod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifax on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifaxwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference.